Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Londonist.loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light before, just a strong throw from your front door. is the sound of traffic on the embankment. Black cabs, London sightseeing buses, white vans. This is Bradley Garrett. (laughs) (laughs) I've already disrupted your podcast. (laughs) Uh, We're going to be disrupting a lot. You're a disruptive sort of fellow, as far as I can work out. Um, A a picture of my guest this week. He he looks like a fellow in disguise. He's wearing the Ray-Ban dark glasses. He's wearing the pulled-down baseball cap and facial hair, and we, we know what facial hair means. Dr. Bradley Garrett, you are the author of Explore Everything, Place Hacking the City, and also Subterranean London, Cracking the Capital, which gives a flavour of what we might be up to today. Hi, how are you going? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, very welcome. We should say, by the way, that this is going to be a two-parter, because there is a lot of capital to crack. And so we're going to be uh, revisiting this idea, but going in an entirely different geographical direction in just a few weeks' time. The reason for that, of course, is that we're coming up to the launch of, well, kind of two books, really. Uh, Explore Everything has been out for a while in hardback. It's out in paperback in September. And Subterranean London Cracking the Capital is going to be out in uh, September for the first time ever. I'm curious, why two titles for each book? Um, well, the, the, the first book, Explore Everything, um, is more of an academic book. It's, it's my ethnographic research with urban explorers in London, people that sneak into off-limits places. Um, so the book is, is a, a story of the four years or five years that I spent with these urban explorers in London, exploring hidden parts of the city. But it's also about the sort of philosophy behind the practice, right? What, like, what does it mean to go into hidden spaces? What does it mean to access other people's property? What does it mean to share photographs of private property that, you know, you shouldn't necessarily have photographs of? Um, so following on from that, the second book, Cracking the Capital, uh, Subterranean London, is 
is the photo book. It's actually a visual dissection of underground London. So I go, I, we go, we go five layers underneath the city, sort of um, moving through sewers and electricity and cable tunnels uh, into the tube, into deep level shelters, and then finally into new construction like like Crossrail that's being cut under the city right now. And that is um, that's a collaborative photo book. So we've got twelve different photographers involved with that. We've decided to meet for the first of these two episodes next to the bust of a man most famous. And you'll know his name if you've listened to this podcast for any time at all or if you uh, take an interest in the history of the capital and and perhaps some of the uh, engineering, civil engineering projects. We're next to the bust of a man famous for putting poo in a pipe. (laughs) Indeed. Jay Bizzle, as we know him, Joseph Bazalgette, is uh, always a good place to start. So the the bust of Bazalgette, which is on the embankment here... um, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have seen it if you've walked by or jogged by, you know, Basil Jet with his massive mustache. You know, this is the man that built, built the sewers. He's the man that, that, that hid all of London's hidden rivers from us. Um, oh, now that I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he um, canalized all of the rivers and then fed them into the interceptor sewers. So what we're actually standing on right now on the embankment is an interceptor sewer, which we've explored. And if we walk down the embankment, I mean, what I'd like to do is kind of show you, show you some of the hidden spaces that um, that we've we've infiltrated and photographed and shared with people. Um, but we've started at Basil Jet because we, we always start with Jay Bizzle. Uh, we come here; he's become sort of like an urban deity or something. We come and leave offerings on the bus to make sure that he blesses our expeditions when we go into the sewers. Earlier, when we were talking about this, I was convinced that you said that you left things on the bus, which is really uh, inadvisable in London. I don't know, you, you, you leave things at the bust. <laughs> on the bust, yeah, yeah. On the, on, the, on the sort of the marble mantle of Bazalgette here, we'll sometimes leave little offerings of... Uh, we've left vials of sewer water, um, flowers. We've left lens caps from cameras. Um, they, they always disappear. I'm not sure who, who collects them. Well, the local street cleaners must love you. Vials of <laughs> sewer water. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, don't, they probably don't know what they are, but if they pop the cork and smell it, they might have an idea. I mean, every, every Londoner knows that smell, right? When you get that whiff of the sewer... And, uh, of course, to us, that's a very comforting smell. That smells like home. That smells like the underground that we walk through every day. And whenever I get that whiff, I love it. So I keep a vial of sewer water on my mantelpiece at home, and I, I, you know, take a whiff when I need it. (laughs) Is it it wrong to uh, ask where your accent might be from? No, I'm I'm, I'm originally from Los Angeles. Um, I left about eight years ago, I think. Um, and I, I lived in Australia for a while. I lived in Hawaii for a few years, which is not, not really the United States. I wasn't much of a return home. And then I, and then I came to London in 2008. And um, I'll be honest with you, I, ne- I never wanted to live in a city. I had no interest in living in a city. I've always been uh, sort of attracted to backpacking and being in the wilderness, scuba diving, whatever, you know. I'm, I'm, in, I'm into sort of adventures. And then I moved here and I'm, I met these, these urban explorers that were sneaking in, into all of these hidden spaces in London. And I realized, my God, these, these are the adventures that I've always wanted, that I've always been seeking, you know, walking out into the wilderness for weeks. And I can have them right here in the city. So I'm, I'm sold now. I, I never want to leave. As somebody who hasn't done that sort of thing, what is the thrill all about? Can you pathologize it? I think for many people, um, exploring is about getting in touch with the heritage that's hidden from us. Um, they're, they're the places that... We know we're there. Like Battersea Power Station is an obvious example, right? I mean, it's, it's an iconic ruin. It's an industrial ruin. It's a site that we're all kind of interested in. But then it's surrounded by hoarding. We can't access it. Um, you know, we're not allowed to see it except on particular days, like open day. 
Um, so, you know, for a lot of people, exploring is a way of getting in touch with the, the, that kind of, those hidden histories. And, it, and it's a way of doing it that's, that's quite visceral, right? I mean, it's like, you know, we're, we're going to go. We're going to sneak in. We're going to experience it on our own terms. There's no guides. There's no interpreters. No one to tell us how, how we're supposed to feel or what we're supposed to do when we're there. You know, it's, it's an amazing feeling. But it's precisely that feeling that feeds into my interest in urban exploration, which is about the politics of space, right? We, we're surrounded by not just heritage locations, but all sorts of things that, that are closed to us, right? Including infrastructure. And, and, you know, we're standing on top of an interceptor sewer right now, which was, which was built with public money and is maintained with public money and which we don't have access to. Um, so I guess, you know, for me, gaining access to those locations and sort of, uh, you know, taking photos and sharing them with the public, there's, there's an important politic behind that, which is a kind of, it's a kind of protest through through a temporary occupation, you know. Yeah, I, I do get the politicised angle here coming through in what you're saying. We'll return, I think, in much more detail to some of the politics of it. I was curious, though, it's something you said there, which was that the experience that you're having is not being mediated for you. You don't have a, a tour guide there. But surely there's an argument for uh, somebody with a, an in-depth knowledge being able to explain what it is you're seeing. Maybe the naive, untutored eye is going to miss out on a lot of the depth and nuance of the experience. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an academic by training this is what I do you know I'm, I'm the person that people come to to interpret things for them and in fact my previous career was as an archaeologist so you know that that was my whole job was you know excavating ruins and, go, and going to sort of you know um, literally buried spaces and uncovering them for people and sort of and, and, and being the interpreter and being the guide um, I got frustrated with playing that role because I felt like what was happening very often is I was being I was being put in control of other people's history, of other people's places, um, and that was a, a, a position of, a, of authority that I that made me slightly uncomfortable. So, I really, when I moved to London, I wanted to find people who were who were discovering heritage sites on their own terms, right? And as much as yeah, it's amazing to, to 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 be with an expert who can walk you through places like this and explain all of the rich nuances of history that can only be dug out of an archive that you would never know by being there. There's also something to be said for having the bodily encounter with space first, right? Like, let's go in, let's feel it out. What does it feel like in these places? How, how do they affect me? And then going back and doing the research, right? It's, it's kind of... It's, it seems like almost a backwards way of learning, but... Um, you know, through the, over the past five years in exploring all these spaces in London, um, I've really come to appreciate what it means to kind of learn through the body. Yeah, there's a great deal to be said for that, I think, in uh, all sorts of different aspects of life, isn't there? Rather than being told what you're supposed to feel about something and then being exposed to things and then, and then doubting yourself, is, is this what I'm supposed to be feeling and so forth? Just getting in there and uh, having an honest reaction to something. That's it, yeah. I mean, you ha- you, you, if someone tells you what to expect, you're going to come in with these preconceived notions. And um, I think, you know, urban exploration at its core is about sort of doing away with that. It's about embracing a little bit of chaos. A bit of, bit of childishness in the, in the uh, positive way as well. Just sort of diving in and saying what you see. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's what we do when we're kids. You just, you know, you know, you run out the door in the morning. You have no plan. You don't know where you're going. You're just going to explore the city. Like, you know, and that's what we're doing. We just never grew up, basically. <laughs> 
Well, I kind of don't believe that you don't have a plan, though, because uh, first of all, you must be thinking about getting into, let's say, a sewer system, and you've got to presumably scope out how you're going to go about that. You, I presume, must also be aware of the risks, and if you don't, I mean, this is one of the dangers, perhaps, if you don't have a guide to tell you, well, the water level's going to rise at this point or that point, you've got to be savvy to these things yourself. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the um, exploration takes a lot of different forms, um, there, there are spontaneous explorations where we'll just move through the city on a kind of situationist derive, you know, and see what we encounter. And some of the, the most incredible stuff we found has been found in that way. Um, a few years back, I was walking through uh, the city with three other explorers, and we just saw this, this hole in a brick wall. And so, you know, as you... As you do when you're a kid you just think well let's go in it so we (laughs) squeeze through this wall we had to go head first and kind of salmon our way through the wall and then we get inside and there's a there's a crane a construction crane sitting in the middle of a yard right in front of us and we're you know we look at each other and think oh this is too good to be true come on you know but sure enough we we go to the crane and we climb up it and we get to the top and what what we were on top was new cord it was what became uh, the the Rothschild Bank building and we had no idea what it was we just stumbled across it it was but it, you know incredible spontaneous find now you could contrast that kind of exploration with the kind of stuff that we do like going into sewers yeah you know we we spent a lot of time in the archives we've got very detailed maps you study tide times you know exactly where you're going you know which direction you're walking in you know which manholes open and which don't because you know you could die if you if you get that information wrong and of course, exploring the tube is 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 is, is the, the the sort of ultimate exploration where you can't. There is no. There's nothing spontaneous about it. You have to know exactly when the trains are running, when the tracks are on. Um, you know where to. What happens if you get caught? What happens if you get seen on camera? You know there's there is some serious planning that goes into that. But you know there's a whole range of ways you can explore. Well, no. I- Unfortunately, I have to drop a disclaimer in here. And uh, <laughs> that is a, for legal reasons. I mean, I'm interested in what you're saying. But l- legally speaking, I cannot endorse what you're saying. And we have to discourage the listener from any acts of illegality, which we're now going to spend the rest of the hour talking about. Yeah, I, I, would, I would absolutely not endorse any of my activities. <laughs> <laughs> we have started at the bust of B. Jizzle. Jake. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, he's a rapper, isn't he? We, <laughs> I think I've just said something highly effective. <laughs> we, we have started at the bust of P. Jay of Jay Diddy. P. <laughs> Jay Bizzle. And we're not going to attempt that again. And we're. Jay, uh, can you imagine Jay Bizzle on a jet ski in a bathrobe? <laughs> this is curiously I can uh, side whiskers flying flowing down the, flying down the river uh, waving at us we're, kind of, we're going to head <laughs> eastwards at least I think this river always confuses me are we heading it oh we're no heading, not quite east. yeah heading east towards Blackfriars well you say that are we actually no I'm not sure we are because no I learned this lesson uh, the hard way if you are facing the South Bank Centre and you're yes you, so you've got the South Bank Centre ahead of you you're on the bridge and you've got Embankment Station behind you your back is pointing west. So that's east over there. Which means that's actually north. It is actually north. But if, if uh, of course, we all don't operate on a real map. We operate on the tube map. It's in our heads. And on the tube map, we're going east. Tube map. 
well, that's good enough for me. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so what, but, but the big question is, why are we doing this? Well, we're walking, we're walking down the embankment right now, and I'm, I'm going to talk to you more about this embankment because the whole thing is fascinating. It's all, it's totally man-made. The whole thing is completely artificial. Um, but the reason why I'm walking you over this is because it's actually hollow, and few people know that. Um, so we're standing on top of these metal lids right now. Hopefully you can hear that. So these lids, um, uh, you wouldn't notice them. I, m- most people don't notice them. But if you were to open this up, what that would actually go into is a massive interceptor sewer. So all of the... All of, I've got to jump here. You've used it, that term a few times. What is an interceptor sewer? Right. So, so the, all of the old hidden rivers of London, which are essentially flowing north to south, they're flowing toward the Thames... Um, they, they were dumping sewage into this river, and that is exactly what Bazalgette was hired in the 1850s to solve. So he solved it by, by creating these interceptor sewers, which intercept all of those hidden rivers. So the hidden rivers are still um, moving sewage through the city, but then they, get, then they run into the interceptor sewers, and from here they can go out to the pumping stations. So this is a, a moat alongside the river that stops the sewage from going into the Thames that's fascinating which, I've is, never we, which is why if the if we have really heavy rains and the interceptor f- sewers overflow we're screwed there's sewage all over the Thames that's a less technical term than interceptor sewer <laughs> yeah exactly so, th- so this I mean you can imagine right now that you know we're walking down the embankment it's a sunny day we've got tourists here and no one has any idea that there's all this sewage you know, that could potentially be flowing underneath them right now. More than likely, this will be dry right now because it's been dry and there's not sort of he- there's not heavy rains or heavy flows of sewage. But these these are built to kind of intercept when things overflow. Well, we are, we are standing and there's uh, eight of them, uh, each of them about a meter and a half by a meter, uh, all, all connected up these big steel panels. And what is directly underneath this? Uh, if you were to open up one of these lids, as we call them, um, the lid would lead you to. Um, a ladder. You, if you climb down the ladder, you would eventually get into the interceptor sewer. Are we talking about a hole that's as big as these eight panels combined, or are these eight different holes, or what? There, there are eight different holes. Um, I'm not. Sh- I actually have no idea why there are so many panels to access the same thing. Probably, uh, I, I imagine you could open them all up and maybe lower machinery into there. Or something. But, um, but yeah, there's only one that you need that has the ladder underneath it. And if you jump on top of them, it's usually the one that makes noise, right? So it, uh, because it's it's loose, it's been open. Um, but I have to I have to say though that in terms of the danger of going into the sewers, no one should ever go in an interceptor sewer because the way these are built, because it's an overflow system. If you were down there and it suddenly started raining very heavily, which it does all the time in London, um, that would fill very very fast if the sewers uh, were to overflow and you could not get out in time. So um, really that fast? That fast? Yeah. Faster than you could climb a ladder? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Don't don't go in the interceptor sewers. You'd be in deep poo-poo. <laughs> Literally. We've just headed under the Hungerford Bridge past Embankment Station, and we can see tourists lining up here to get onto the Thames Rib experience. What I'm going to suggest we do at around about this point, we're going to go all virtual on you, listener. I am going to send Dr. Bradley down underground. And we're going to do two tours at once, and we'll be able to communicate with each other via some uh, clever method. But he's going to be underground and telling us what's going on down there. And I'm going to stay above ground and uh, locate you, so we'll be able to see exactly how the subterranean 
corresponds with the above ground experience. Is that okay with you? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, we'll send you down now. And uh, so, as I say, we're outside the the rib. And what can you see down there? So, essentially... It's very, very good sound quality down there. <laughs> it's very good. There's no echo at all. <laughs> I'm inside uh, some, some, some sort of vaulting brick arches, right? And they, the bricks that I can see have been hand-laid, and they've been down here for 150 years. The, the entire system, including the interceptor sewers, is full of 318 million hand-laid bricks. And they're all in perfect alignment. I mean, you can be forgiven for thinking that these were all put down here by machines. Uh, they're, they're, they were actually hand-laid. And because there's a, a constant temperature down here, and there's constant condensation down here, the bricks always glisten. They look like they're sweating. And if you look down the tunnel and you pay attention to the, the, the water that could be rushing down here at any time, you get a sense that the whole tunnel is kind of contracting and that, and you feel that you're actually inside the urban body, like you're in a vein or you're in an artery and moving through it. How tall is the tunnel you're in? Uh, it's about eight feet tall. And uh, presumably that's not the only thing down there. I'm imagining there must be stuff uh, further down than that, is there? Well, there is stuff underneath me right now, but also uh, on the other side of this sewer, what we find is... Um, electricity and cable tunnels. So this is uh, the river one side, then the tunnel, and then next the electricity. Right, yeah, and they, they do crisscross, so they're, they're not always in that order. And we'll, we'll come to a space forward up here where you'll be able to look down through the grating and see me inside the cable tunnels. Well, I'm looking forward to this. But imagine this, so imagine this, right? The, the, the embankment that I'm walking through right now didn't exist at one time. And if you look at some of the buildings on the side of the Thames... You'll see stairs uh, going up to the side of the building, and we're going to see that. Uh, you'll see that coming up here. Okay. Well, I'm uh, I'm just coming to the end of the Rib Experience platform. There, floating uh, 20, 30 feet out in the river. There's a free plug for Bateau London private charters. It's very nice, actually. If I look away from the river, we've got the gardens just there. Is that Embankment Gardens, Victoria Gardens? Victoria Embankment Gardens, one of those. Uh, there's some gardens, and we can see people sitting out there having their lunch break from office work. And well, you suddenly realise that that must be what would have been the uh, the lapping edge of the river at the start of the buildings. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. All, all of this was constructed in the 19th century, and well, that's an, that's an astonishing change in the width of the river. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, all of the rivers at this time. You imagine. London in 1840 was a completely different place to London in 1860. You know, all of the rivers were, were canalized and covered over. Um, you know, the interceptor sewers were built. The embankment suddenly springs up. The Thames is locked into this channel in most parts of it. And um, uh, what, what we have today, what we walk on today, is, is, you know, a fiction. There was no land here. We're walking on water right now. How do you suppose that fitted into the Victorian mentality generally? There are two things going on here. One is that um, the Victorians were experiencing a crisis. I mean, a a serious urban infrastructural crisis. There was sewage everywhere. People were dumping all of their local sewers into the rivers. There were, um, I mean, going up the fleet, which is just, you know, just north of Blackfriars, where we're headed, uh, the... 
Smithfield Market was dumping all of the sort of, you know, carcasses of animals in the river, and it was all getting flushed into the Thames. This was a horribly polluted river. It was, it was a miserable place to live. So they had to construct this. Um, it was just a question of who was going to do the best job. And Bazalgette, when he brought this proposal to them, imagine this, right? Bazalgette says, I'm going to construct, you know, I'm going to construct this, this system that is going to alleviate the sewage problem. But not only that, I'm going to construct it so that it lasts for 150 years. And, and I'm going to, he anticipated the growing population of London and that this infrastructure would hold up. And it has. It's not until 150 years later that we're actually talking about, you know, building a super sewer and because, you know, this, this, this system is failing. And also, the embankment... So I'm... The embankment that I'm in right now, as I said, right next to me, I've got these electricity and cable tunnels, right? Um, that was sort of empty space that was built. It, it was anticipation of a future use. How, we, don't, we don't do this today. We don't think about, you know, what, what Londoners are going to need in 150 years and build to that. We build to a kind of, you know, a, a, a 10 or 15 or maybe 20-year triage point. So what I'm saying is that the Victorians were building with future planning in mind very heavily. We're building out of a sense of crisis. And look, this is my thesis, right? Is that the problem is that Londoners care less about this city now, right? We, I mean... We all love this city, and we all choose to live here, or most of us choose to live here, right? Um, but if we're asked to invest in infrastructure for future generations in this city, we don't want to pay for it. And, that, and uh, you know, obviously it has something to do with globalization. Everyone imagines, well, my job might take me somewhere else, and who knows if my kids are going to live here, and why do I really want to invest in the infrastructure of this particular city, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think that, you know... The, the more we do things like this, the more we walk around the city and talk about it, the more we open up manholes and go into it and see the infrastructure, the more we explore the city, the more we will actually care about it and we'll, and we'll think about investing in it and we'll understand the importance of that infrastructure and the more we'll want our kids to stay here and, you know, keep London as a place that we want to live. I strongly agree with what you're saying there and there's a, a voice that I've been hearing a lot, particularly in national politics in the last few years, and I connect it with perhaps one or two parties in particular, but it's the idea, usually centred around immigration, that people have come over here and ruined everything. And you get phrases like, the country's gone to the dogs because... Just stop and look around you at what this magnificent city has achieved and the relative harmony in which we've managed to achieve it, the great history that we've got, the incredible cultural hub that this place is, and surging ahead in all sorts of other areas as well. We won't mention finance, but science and all sorts of other bits and pieces. Um, take some pride. It's the people going, oh, country's gone to the dogs, London's not what it used to be. You're the problem. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and I have to say that of the urban explorers... Uh, that I've met in London over the past five years. I mean, these are people deeply, deeply interested in the history of this city and invested in um, photographing this city and sharing it with people and sharing it with the world, right? These are, these are the people who are writing the stories of London. Half of them aren't from here. Right? <laughs> They're from other places. And, and a, few, a few of the explorers are from Eastern Europe. And when, when the doors opened and they were able to come over, the first thing they thought was, I want to go and photograph every part of that city I can possibly find, you know. Well, that, that, that is love. That That's is love. the old story of somebody who's from outside the city coming here and falling in love with it and uh, wanting more, more, more. Well, that's exactly what I did. 
where, um, well, of course you're not, you're down there, but I'm passing over some more of these panels. I'm now becoming very cautious as I pass over them, just in case Dr. Bradley is underneath one of them at this moment, about to emerge. And to locate us, we're coming up for Cleopatra's Needle. Now, we've never been past this on the podcast so far. So we, so we walk and re-emerge over here? Oh, uh, we could do. Yes, is there a suitable place for you to come up? Yeah, I think... Um, yeah. Pop out of the top of the needle or something. I'll, 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 I'll keep an eye out for manholes I can pop out of up here, but there's, there's plenty, as long as they work. <laughs> That's the problem. Half the manholes you've got to open, they don't work. So you need to keep a very strict record of which ones actually function. Oh, look at this. Look at this. Oh, we're, we're looking at a disc now. It's about the size of a car's wheel. And it's got four slits in it, like the uh, four quarters of the hour. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, shine a torch up through this thing so that you can actually see down at what's inside here, yeah? Okay, well, we're on hands and knees. Uh, What can we see? Um, okay, if you look down, can you see that chain? I can see a chain. So that chain is connected to a plate, and if you were to pull up that manhole, uh, it would pull up a, a, a sort of safety plate, which would then allow you to climb down in there. Unfortunately, this one doesn't have a ladder, so it's not one that I can exit from. So we're going to have to leave you down there for longer. But those, those what, you're, what you're looking down into now, we've crossed over into the cable tunnels. Oh, right. Okay, yes, I was looking for liquid and I couldn't see too much down there. Yeah, well, there, there wouldn't be liquid in the interceptor sewers right now anyway, since it's, uh, since it's been nice, dry. Nice warm day, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, because it's easy to talk about the built environment, because there's so much evidence of it, uh, both in physical form here and in record. But I wonder if you know what the take of those people who own the properties alongside the river uh, what was their reaction to it being embanked and them losing their river access oh, you know there was a, there's a, a great story in um, uh, Fiona Rule's new book London Labyrinth which is fantastic I have to give that a plug but it, um, there's a great story about uh, this, this uh, duke I think he was called the Duke of Bokluk or something but he, he had a riverfront property and he had access to the river from the back of his property when they said that they were going to build the embankment um, to fix the sewage system uh, he was obviously really frustrated that he was going to lose access to the river and so he started protesting and there was actually a sort of counter protest with the public telling him hey look this is for everyone you don't get to retain access to the river for your private use when you know up against a public infrastructure project that's for everyone so yeah he was he was completely shouted down you can't imagine that happening today no I was thinking the the same thing in the same way the scars that disfigure the pedestal of the obelisk the bases of the sphinxes and the right hand sphinx were caused by fragments of a bomb dropped in the roadway close to this spot this spot being right next to the uh, two sphinxes either side of Cleopatra's needle here on the embankment in the first raid on London by German aeroplanes a few minutes before midnight on Tuesday the 4th of September 1917 so imagine that, that this embankment is constructed only 150 years ago, and already it's accruing all of these layers of history, right? We find, we find scars from 
uh, from the war, these bomb scars all over these monuments. And when we look at them, I mean, that, that's, uh, you wouldn't want to be standing in the way of that at all. They've penetrated quite a reasonable way into the building blocks underneath the needle. No. I wonder if they actually... Surely, surely they knew what sort of damage it would have wrought if they took out the sewage infrastructure in the city. I mean, if a bomb had hit this embankment um, and sewage started pouring out everywhere, you'd have a major disaster. Well, I suppose that says something to the robustness of the Victorian project. <laughs> Very much so. You know, I, I, I've walked hundreds of miles of sewers in London, and it's very rare to find a leak or a problem with them. I mean, they're, they're incredibly well-maintained um, or incredibly well, uh, were incredibly well-built and engineered to begin with, so they don't even need to be maintained as such. It's a... It's a, it's a um, oh, again, I, I can't really imagine infrastructure being built in the same way these days. I wonder if you could tell us what else you can see down there and uh, uh, what, what else is running parallel with you. Right, so now, now that I'm in the, uh, the, the cable tunnels, as we call them, these are, these are uh, GLC pipe subways. Um, these are full of uh, gas pipes. They're full of uh, telecommunications, fiber optics, electricity... I mean, these are, these, are, these are the other veins and arteries of the city, right? This is all the infrastructure that we need uh, to keep the city functioning. And the thing that, I'll, I'll be honest with you, they're, they're, once you've seen them, you've seen them. There's, a, you know, there's not a whole lot going on here. They're, they're just stretches of tunnels with cables draped through them. Um, and we've, we've done our best to take beautiful photographs of them and, and you know, depict them in a way that uh, uh, displays them in all of their grandeur. But, um, but what's, what's exciting about these spaces is not actually, you know, what I'm standing in. It's what it connects, right? It's it, you think about all of the, all of the phone calls and all of the data, all of the information, all of the things that like make London work, are going through these tunnels, and in the same way, you go into the sewers and you know, and you suddenly realize that all of these millions of people that are flushing their toilets and taking showers and dumping things down drains, it's all ending up in the system where it all mixes, and there's something like wonderfully democratic about every, everyone from every class and every background speaking all these different languages and everything in there gets all mixed up in the same place. It all goes through the same channels and the same conduits. I feel like that's what we're photographing. That's what we're sharing. You know, we're, we're actually making visible how everything functions and how it works and where it moves and what it connects. I love that. Yes, but there's a lot of focus on where our food comes from. Less focus on where it goes to uh, after we've used it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, where, where does it go after it's passed through the sewer system here so um essentially you'll have a local a local sewer that will be connected to your house the local sewer will dump into a larger sewer the larger sewer will connect to an interceptor sewer which will take it out to a pumping station so there's there's one at cross ness and there's one at abbey mills um i think there's a few more those were the original pumping stations i think there's a few more now and that's really a very long way it's a long way yeah 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 um, but the idea, of course, is that when they were built in the 1850s, this was beyond the borders of London. So it was taking the sewage out of the city. And, of course, now, now the city has subsumed the, the pumping stations. Um, you know, and there's, there's a whole history of that. Like, you know, Deptford used to be where they boiled whale fat because the, the prevailing winds would take it away from the city. And, of course, now Deptford is, is London, you know. And the, the prevailing winds did not take the smell away from the city. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> We could also mention what happens when everybody flushes their toilets at once and it's raining. Yeah, well, the, the, the system is, is, is prone to being overloaded. And I, I guess um, going into the system and seeing it, 
it, it does remind you how fragile our existence here is. Uh, there's a there's another great book I'm going to plug by by Alan Wiseman called The World Without Us, where he imagines what would happen if human beings disappeared. And you know, it's a relatively short amount of time, like you know, a week or something before water pipes start bursting, you know, sewage starts overflowing. The, I mean, the whole system starts rupturing and shutting down. When we walk around the city, you know, what we see all the time is a sort of static representation of what people think the city is, right? And there's all sorts of maintenance and engineering uh, that goes into keeping the city in this way. But ruins and infrastructure and construction sites, I have to say, going into those spaces are totally fascinating because there you get to see the city in between. The city that we're not allowed to see, right? The ci- it's almost like it's the, it's the naked city in a sense, right? Like you get to see behind the scenes and you realize suddenly how much work goes into maintaining this fragile existence. And if we, if someone were to stop, like if, if you know, Thames Water didn't have enough money to operate and do their maintenance, it's, the implications are serious. Um, I mean, we all feel it when there's a tube strike, right? Tube stops running for a day. The city goes insane. You know, everything shuts down. It's complete chaos. This is a very fragile existence. We all live here. And, we, you know, we, we owe a great debt of thanks, not just to the engineers that built this stuff, but to the people who keep it going now. We're just coming up for Waterloo Bridge now. And whilst you can't see it where you are, there's a plaque on the wall. In fact, this is the, the second of its kind, a plaque to a novelist whose reputation perhaps has not survived as well as it might have done through to this century, Sir Walter Besant, novelist, historian of London. I'm going to have to find out what kind of historian of London he was. He seems relevant to what we're talking about, perhaps. Died 9th of June 1901. Yeah, I've, I've never heard of Walter Besant. But this, sir, this sir, is sir Walter Besson. Sir Walter Besson, I'm sorry, yeah. I, when people don't call me doctor, I get terribly offended. <laughs> um, the, the great thing about walking down the embankment, it's, you know, this is, a, this is usually a space where people are cycling or jogging or whatever, and people go right past these things. Yeah. And when you take your time and pay attention, um, you find all sorts of stuff. Oh, look, there's another sewer lid. What's he saying? Well, I'm, I'm jumping up and down on top of the lid of this thing. Seems pretty solid. Yeah, so if, if, if I look up from here, there's a small channel that leads to a ladder. A ladder's about two meters. And if I climb up that, I can get to the bottom of this manhole and I can actually pop out of this embankment. If, if you look at the top from where you are, there, there will be a, a, a sort of flap, a metal flap. And if you pull that back, it'll, it'll have some adhesive on it. Um, there's a There's a... A place where you can put a T-shaped sewer key and open it up. Well, that's London carrying on about its business. I'm just opening up this flap here to have a look. And uh, certainly there are two places there. Now, if I had the right tool, of course, I could presumably prize this up. But But being the sort of chap I am, I of course don't have that kind of equipment with me. Let's imagine a world in which the person I'm interviewing did have that piece of equipment. Wrong size. Wrong size? Yeah. I'm wondering now what else is in the knapsack he carries with him. Um, I want to move us along, actually, to the consequences, potential consequences, uh, legal or otherwise, of the sort of stuff you're getting up to there. Sure. Um, the, the, the consequences for exploring have a lot to do with where you are and what you're exploring. So um, the UK tends to take it much more seriously than France, for instance. I mean, um, explorers in Paris are involved with 
all sorts of bizarre projects. I mean, it, it, underneath Paris, is, there's 180 kilometers of empty catacombs. Mm. Um, and entry to the catacombs is forbidden, but um, no one really enforces it. So in somewhere like the UK, uh, people do take it much more seriously, especially if you're in uh, transport infrastructure or on the railways. Well, you're, you're a prime uh, suspect for terrorism, anti-terrorism uh, laws, aren't you, immediately? I, if, if you were to think this, this... This is the whole problem with our age, right, is we don't think things through logically, right? So if we were to, if we were to actually think about this, the spaces that we're getting into are very difficult to access, and going into them is a, is a com- incredibly conspicuous activity. Like, you can't not look dodgy when you're opening a manhole and going into the street, right? So the, the, the best way, I think, to... to <laughs> Sorry. How do, you, how do you... I just want to, uh, to imagine you emerging. Can you give me the kind of look with which you try to carry that off? <laughs> oh, the best thing to do is just to be um, as friendly and approachable as possible, I think, when you open the sewer lid. You know, often we do this at, like, 2 in the morning, and you pop this sewer lid in the middle of the, of the road, and inevitably there will be, like, some guy in a suit with a loosened tie, you know, half drunk, <laughs> that will just scream, Oh, what's going on? You know? And you just wave and say, Hey, we're, we're having a look at the sewers. Check out our photos. And you flip through the camera, and then suddenly then they get it. They're like, Oh, okay, that's kind of weird and interesting. Bye. Oh, right. Oh, so you're not pretending, Oh, I left my spectacles in there or something? No, no, no. I think it's best to be honest about these things. I mean, the thing, the thing is, I don't want to be apologetic because I want to explore my city. Right? Why, why, why do I have to apologize because I want to see what a sewer looks like? Why should I have to apologize if I want to, you know, climb up the shard before it's finished and take a photograph from the top? Like, this is a totally normal thing to do. If we lived in, in uh, the wilderness and there was a hill next to our house, everyone would expect that at some point you would climb the hill because you want to see the view from the top. Why don't we treat the urban environment with, with the, the, the same sort of, you know... Um, casual expectation that like people are going to want to explore it who doesn't want to see the london skyline from a rooftop so what is then your understanding of the boundaries when it comes to uh, i guess property ownership because that's got to be the, the the sort of the rules upon which any complaint against your activity uh, is yeah. founded yeah, yeah yeah so so this is why i said that it's not just about where you are in the world but it's about what kind of spaces you're going into so you would never want to for instance, explores like someone's house. And in some places you go, you may find that people are living in abandoned buildings or people are living in drains. And when we encounter people, we always leave very quickly. Living in drains? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in, in, when I was in Las Vegas, there were over 300 people living in the drain system there. Um, in, in Bucharest, there are also people living in the sewers. And in, in Bogota, Colombia, you do find this in, in other parts of the world, not in the UK. Um, and actually, I've, I've only encountered someone living in a derelict building once in the UK. But when that happens, you know, you always want to be very apologetic and leave because it is someone's house and you have just essentially walked into their house. Um, that being said, an abandoned building, if no one is living in there, uh, I don't see any harm in going into an abandoned building. Uh, the, you know, if you're not damaging anything and you're not moving anything and you're not disturbing anything... Obviously, the property owners aren't doing anything with that space. Um, it's not affecting them. And as long as, as there's a general agreement in taking responsibility for our actions, so if you were to get hurt or something, obviously you, could, you know, wouldn't sue the property owner because you chose to jump over their fence and wander around in their abandoned building. 
Um, you know, I don't see a problem with exploring those spaces. Where it becomes more political is when we start talking about infrastructure, right? So um, we've got a we've got a pretty symbiotic relationship with Thames Water, I have to say. They you know they don't seem overly bothered by us exploring the sewers, and we will report leaks and things if we find them. Um, is that on an official level, or uh, you don't, don't ask, don't tell kind of thing? Yeah, it's well, it's it's a typical English scenario where we just you know don't talk about these things and we all carry on doing what we're doing, right? Um, but uh, TFL took a very hard line against us, and they did not want us exploring the tube under any circumstances. What, and, we, what were you trying to do? Uh, we were accessing all of the abandoned stations in the system. It took us two years, and we, we eventually did. We've seen them all now. But um, uh, TFL were aware that we were accessing these stations, and they were actively trying to stop us. Um, of course, they, they, they didn't. Um, uh, we, we saw the stations in the end, but they... Uh, uh, came after us in a very real and legal sense after we had published all of the photos of the stations, um, and there, you know, there were consequences to that. I think that their attitude was unfortunate because we're obviously this is a closed legal case. Yes, it's a closed case. Um, it, it, it's quite obvious to anyone who has more than a, a cursory interest in what we do that we're we are very active citizens in this city, um, and. If you were to think through that terrorism question realistically, you know, having active citizens who are accessing all of these spaces is actually your best defense, isn't it? People who know where these spaces are. I'll give you a practical example. Um, do you remember in, I think it was 1999, there were some Chechen rebels that had taken a bunch of people hostage in a theater in Russia. It was actually an urban explorer who told the special forces how to get into a tunnel system that they could access the theater from. That's how special forces got in there and rescued those hostages. Um, I don't know, I'm just kind of like... We probably have more knowledge than any other group of people about the hidden parts of this city, you know, about the things that... I mean, practical knowledge, not just, you know, I read it in a book and I know that river's there, but actually which manholes work and how can I get from one place to the other. You know, I can cross this entire city without leaving the underground. I can move from one infra- infrastructural system to another um, and, and get across without ever touching foot on street level. And that, you know, getting that kind of knowledge takes years and years. And what authorities should be doing, in my opinion, is making allies of us, you know, and saying, look, you guys are obviously, you love the city, you care about it, um, help us take care of it, help us protect it. But that's not the line they take. We mentioned that this is the first in a two-parter. In the next episode, we're going to be talking our way around some of the specialist knowledge inside Dr. Bradley's head and perhaps touching lightly, maybe, I don't know, on the governmental side of things and finding out what might be going on there that we don't know about. But I want to just linger for one moment longer on this interaction with TFL and I'm curious to know what the regulations were under which they came after you or what they were suggesting you were doing. Uh, TFL were, were concerned that because we had photographed the abandoned stations in the tube and we had published those photographs not just on our blogs but also in my book um, that it would inspire other people to do what we had done right and there was because you could be prosecuted for trespass I should say that trespass in England is not a criminal offense you cannot be prosecuted for trespass in this country 
um, it, unless there are particular circumstances like you refuse to leave or you go equipped to do damage to something while you're trespassing. But just cr going onto someone else's property is not a crime in this country. So TFL, under bylaws that are connected to the railways, they can criminalize trespass, but the statute of limitations had expired on that because we didn't release our photos until the statute of limitations had expired. So what they decided to do was to arrest us for criminal damage and burglary and launch an investigation which um, necessitated, I guess, taking our doors down with battering rams and confiscating all of our property. So British Transport Police took all of our hard drives, our computers, our film, uh, anything that could hold or contain data, all of my notebooks, um, and they held those materials for two years while they investigated us. What they found, eventually, is that there was absolutely no evidence of criminal damage or burglary on any of those drives, but they charged us with conspiracy to commit criminal damage. Because under English law, you can be prosecuted for conspiring to commit a criminal act even if it hasn't happened. And what they were saying is that when we were exploring the, the abandoned tube stations, we were reckless as to whether damage could be caused, and that constituted enough intent that they could prosecute us for conspiracy. Now, when... Fast forward two years, and, you know, our lives have been completely destroyed by what British Transport Police had done to us. I mean, our, our people lost jobs. My passport was taken. I was trapped in the country for two years, awaiting trial. And when we finally got to trial... Um, the conspiracy collapsed almost immediately. There was no evidence. And, and in fact, the prosecuting QC said that in the instance of one of the explorers, there was never any evidence against him at all in the case. And there was no reason why he should have been included. Anyway, in the end, uh, Transport for London were absolutely adamant that I pled guilty to something because, well to be honest, because they had spent over £300,000 prosecuting us of taxpayer money, let's keep in mind. So um, I pled guilty to four counts of criminal damage, which included removing a wing nut from the back of a door and unscrewing a board and putting it back on. And, uh, you know, I guess British Transport Police were happy because they got their prosecution, and I ended up not having a criminal record because the judge um, gave me a conditional discharge. She said, you know... Well, she said that it was obvious that I had... Uh, a good career ahead of me and she didn't want that to be impacted by by what was obviously you know incidental or accidental counts of criminal damage that you know that essentially what she was saying is that there you know there was no malicious intention here that you know she recognized that we we went out to explore the city with all the best intentions and of course you know if you're going to be wiggling through air shafts and climbing over fences and stuff like you know there, there's going to be um, there's going to be minor impacts when you do these things, but um, the, ju the judge was pretty sympathetic in the end, so it's ended up being all right, you know. The court, the court case is over, and I don't, I don't have a conviction on my record, and uh, many of the other explorers, there were ten of us involved in the case, and many of the other explorers have now been, um, uh, you know, they were dismissed, so they've, they've got absolutely nothing on their records. But um, I, as I say, I, I think... I think that that was a really unfortunate, heavy-handed response to what was obviously a, a, a group of people 
you know, absolutely in love with this city and going out to explore it every day. I find it easier, somebody curious about the city and wanting to know what's behind all the closed doors, I find it easy to sympathise with your point of view but I imagine there might be somebody listening who's thinking well you know how can we have any sympathy for this guy he breaks the rules he knows he's breaking them uh, you know he, he should expect at least this well we break rules but we don't break laws that's that's the difference um, and I guess you know look through the history of London how how many how many rule breakers have been the people that we look back to as, as you know, people that push things forward, people that were working on the cutting edge, you know. I mean, think about the things that people were prosecuted for writing in the 18th and 19th century, you know, and now, of course, it's, it's, uh, it seems ridiculous. I think we'll probably look back on this age in the future and think that the, the way that we controlled space and the way that we stopped people from doing certain things it was an absurdity. Right at the beginning of this podcast we were talking about jay bizzle and you were uh, making offerings to his bust which is a sentence that uh, i'm slightly nervous about using um and we know about the victorian times that in some respects it was very innovative but there's also that straight laced edge to it i'm not sure it was a veneer i think it ran right through a society in some respects we know there was a sordid underbelly as there is in any age but it was quite an upright sort of society and he had uh, civic values and pride in the city in mind he wears a starched collar and side whiskers what do you think jay bizzle would think of what you're up to well, remember that, you know, his, history is always written by the victors, right? And, you know, if, if, if we were to look back at, um, you know, the history of today, we're probably going to remember very conservative governments and, you know, it, it's going to also appear very uptight and straight-laced. But think that at the time that Bazalgette was building the sewers, you also had Charles Dickens, who was, who was walking London over the borders, you know, going out into the outskirts of the city. You also had... Henry Mayhew, who was going around with the, with the mudlarkers and the, and the toshers who were sneaking into the sewers. Just ten years after Basil Jett built the sewer system, Charles Dickens hired John Hollingshead to, to go into the sewer system, to do exactly what we do today and to bring back a report. And Hollingshead goes into his, his local sewer and he watches yeah. the sewage dumping out of his local sewer into, uh, into the, 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 the main sewer. And he said that he felt like he was opening a trap door to his chest as he was watching this sewage flow. I mean, it's an amazing idea, but even more amazing is that is the idea that in 1860s, you know, there were all sorts of people um, wandering around in the sewers and, you know, digging around on the foreshore of the Thames and probably doing urban exploration. It's just that we don't have a record of it because publication was more controlled then, you know. So, I don't know, that's a part, part, of, my, part of my hope now in publishing all of this stuff, which obviously has risks and consequences. You know, I have been prosecuted for publishing secret information about this city, essentially. But I feel like this is really important to do because I want people to look back in a hundred years and think, wow, that was an exceptional period of time. There were all of these people out there who, 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 who loved the city that much that they would risk prosecution to go into the sewers and to climb through electricity tunnels and find ghost stations in the tube and see the view from every rooftop in the city. That's important. 
we're going to be taking a closer look at Subterranea in a few weeks' time. And uh, again, with my guest for today, Dr. Bradley Garrett. You can get his book in the meantime, Explore Everything, Place Hacking the City. That's out as we speak. You have to wait until September for the paperback version and indeed for Subterranean London cracking the capital for uh, now and just for a, a pause of a few weeks. Dr. Bradley Garrett, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Dr. Bradley Garrett. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.